0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 9 verses 30 through 50 with Pastor John Cain. What a beautiful day we have. Man, thank you guys for coming to church. It's awesome. You know, we prayed this morning about our concerns and I you know, I keep bringing this up, but uh, we prayed this morning about our concerns with uh, the church in general and the fact that it appears that a lot of people have decided, they've found other things to do on Sundays. Um, you know, we can, we can make all kinds of comments about that, but I just want to encourage you guys, faithful people who come to church, just, you know, I don't even want to have to say, don't let that thought come in your head, but, uh, you know, it is important that we gather. And so, you know, mainly for those online that haven't been able to come back, I understand I totally understand what's going on. But I just want to encourage you, don't set it in your heart and your mind that you're never coming back. And don't allow the enemy to give you something else to do. Uh, don't be, unfortunately, you know, somebody was very affected by somebody uh, standing with a sign saying, I've lost my faith. That's a sad commentary on our society today and the church in general in America. So I want to encourage you guys, um, you know, stay faithful. Stay faithful. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming back. So be faithful to what he's called you to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to be in the gospel of Mark. We're still marching through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to finish all of chapter nine. You can see verses 30 through 50. And then we're going to have communion. You're thinking, man, when are we going to ever get out of here today? But uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Now last week we learned some great lessons about our relationship with God. We always learn something when we see somebody interacting with Jesus. And we learned about our relationship by, with God by observing the interaction between Jesus and the man who had brought his son to be delivered from a demon. Jesus and his three disciples, John, James, and Peter, were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they walked straight into a mess, you know, reality, they were straight into a very messy situation. There was a large crowd gathered to watch an actual dispute, a live dispute, imagine that. Uh, and there was an argument between the scribes and the disciples, the nine who were left behind. And the reason for the argument was that the boy who was possessed by an evil spirit was not receiving healing. When his father brought him before the disciples, they were unable to cast it out. You guys remember that. But when Jesus arrived, he asked a very important question. Or excuse me, he he came to ask about the discussion. And he, he wanted to know what's going on. You know, he he shows up and he's saying, what's going on? So the man explains, he says, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples and that they should cast it out. But they could not. But Jesus famously replied to everyone present. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Our lesson began with a rebuke from Jesus about faithfulness or faithlessness, we should say. But it wasn't isolated to just the disciples. He let the man describe in great detail how the demon had abused his son since childhood. And then he finally petitioned Jesus. He said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, he had just opened the door again for an honest conversation between him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus challenged him with these words. He said, Sir, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. This cut the man's heart to the quick. Because when he replied, he said this, he, he came to tears before the Lord and he cried out. He said, Lord, I believe. Now help my unbelief. Isn't that so true about us? You see, Jesus got to the real heart of the situation. Before God can ever work in our lives, we must be honest with him. And we must admit our needs and our shortcomings. Then he can address our greatest need. And oftentimes our greatest need is faith and confidence that God is who he says he is no matter the circumstances. You don't have to stand out there. You don't have to make a post on Facebook saying, I've lost my faith, if you're being honest with God. And you're admitting your need. And so whether it's for our salvation or our spiritual growth, without believing faith, we simply cannot please God. And that should be our heart's desire, because after all, He went to the cross for you and I. But even though our faith is weak and imperfect... That's a fact. Even though that's the case, God will respond with mercy and compassion when we say with this man, Lord, I believe. Please help me with my unbelief. Today we're going to get back on the road with Jesus. We're going to get back on the road towards Judea. He's going to start heading south. Jesus will once again remind them of what lies ahead. Of course, his betrayal, his murder, and his resurrection. He would teach them lessons about servanthood, their eternal rewards, the need to take your sin very seriously, and the reality of eternal hellfire. That's right, we said it right here in church. The eternal hellfire for those who reject Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you once again for all your loving kindness. Lord, we thank you for your patience, for your compassion, for the trust that we have in you comes because you respond to us when we're honest with you. And we see it as an outworking in our lives. We see it in the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through us. We see it in victory over sin. We testify it in your victory over sin and death. And Lord, so we thank you. Oh, it's a hard road, Lord. You know it better than anybody, how hard the road is. But you're taking us with you. We're walking with you, Lord, as we continue on this journey. We pray this all now in Jesus' precious name. So today we're going to be again in in chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. But we're going to start just kind of a little bit at a time here. We're going to see here that Jesus again predicts his death and resurrection continues to let them know he continues to teach them and so in verse 30 it says then they departed from there they were in at the mount of uh, you know they were in uh, Caesarea Philippi it says they uh, departed from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know it for he taught his disciples and said to them the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after he is killed he will rise the third day But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now in verse 30, we see, it was time now to leave the relative safety of Caesarea Philippi and start to make their way towards Jerusalem. And notice Jesus didn't want anybody to know it. You see, Jesus really wanted to ensure, especially this time, that he could be alone with his disciples. In order to give them private instructions. Without the distraction of the large crowds. And see, you know, the Lord, He will always give us time to be alone with Him. If we'll make time. He will always do that. The time for using the region of Galilee, those two years, as a central location for ministry was now coming to an end. And notice in verse 31, He says, He taught His disciples and said to them, now the imperfect tense of this word verb taught meant that Jesus was actively teaching them all through their journey. It wasn't just, a, I have this to say, he was continuing to say it, whether it was a one-on-one or a group situation. He was focused and devoted to their understanding. Luke 9.44, the same, the same account. Luke says in 9.44, Jesus said, Let these words sink down into your ears. You know, he's really wanting to get, you know, instead of just going in one ear and out the other, he really wants it to sink into their hearts, if you will, not just in their mind. He said, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. This was the second time Jesus predicted his coming death in, in Mark's gospel. Now we know that the Son of Man refers to Jesus the Messiah. This was a messianic title which is referenced or referred to prophetically in Daniel 7.13. A wonderful passage to put, you know, write down, just jot it down, and and maybe even, uh, you know, refer to it often. Because for thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years, they they predicted Jesus' coming. But notice he says, he, was, he is being betrayed into the hands of men. If you have a King James Version, it says, is delivered. Paradidomai, handed over. What this means is that both God and Jesus were delivering him to be crucified. You say, well, well, no, wait a minute. You might say, well, what about the scribes and the elders and the chief priests? Or how about the people? And, and of course, we know about Pontius Pilate. Didn't they deliver him up to be crucified? Well, of course, yes, in in human terms. But do you think they could have laid a hand on him without God allowing it? And do you think that he hadn't planned? This wasn't plan B. Oh, I I guess I'll just crucify Jesus now. No, God knew. God knew. Acts 2.23, the writer says, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This, this plan was laid out before the foundation of the earth, if you will. He says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified him and put to death. Galatians 1.4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So he was handed over, he was delivered, uh, you know, human instruments were involved, but this was God's plan. This was God's purpose. And of course, in their mind, he says, he'll be handed over and they will kill him. See, they would have thought it was over. The enemy would think that he had won. But for Jesus, and especially for you and I, this was only the beginning. And of course, he says he will rise on the third day, anestimai. God the Son is risen. He stood, he walked, and he was seen by hundreds. Notice something. Whenever Jesus speaks about his death, he always speaks about his resurrection. He doesn't just end it with his death. Matthew Henry says, this should have given them encouragement. When they understood that, but see it was going in one ear and out the other, and they didn't understand yet. But we know that he would die as a willing sacrifice. We have the benefit that they didn't have at that time. He's not a hopeless martyr. He did it in order to redeem man from the consequences of sin by the will of the Father. All deliberately planned in God's purposes as a path to redemption. God would never sacrifice his perfect holiness unless he had a perfect plan to forgive us of our sins. And that's what he did verse 32 but they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him you know that's a common phrase you know so i don't i don't quite get it and i'm not sure i really want to (laughs) know you know i i don't know exactly what he's saying but uh you know maybe i don't want to ask either it says but they did not understand it means they were ignorant they they didn't know exactly what it means and they were afraid to ask him why why were they fearful it's interesting when you look, they weren't just fearful. When you look at Matthew seventeen twenty-three, 23, um, he said, you know, they will kill him, predicting his death, and on the third day he will be call, uh, raised up. But notice, they were exceedingly sorrowful. So not only were they afraid, but they were saddened by the thought. And then if you look over in Luke nine forty-five, it says, but they did not understand this saying, and it was also hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And then he goes on to say that they were afraid to ask. So God's working in this situation and he's revealing. So their lack of understanding and their fear of asking at this time appears to be, uh, you know, part of the Lord's plan. So we got to be careful. Don't go so hard on the apostles for not understanding. Keep in mind that you and I are, you know, sometimes just as much of a blockhead as they were. Keep in mind that sometimes the Lord doesn't reveal things to us when we don't understand. There's a reason. There's some certain other things he maybe needs to cover first to bring us to a place of understanding. But why was Jesus continuing to teach them about his coming death and resurrection? You know, he was going to continue to be faithful to do this, even though in his plan he knew that they wouldn't understand. But the reason why it's important, it's important then and it's important now, Because of the enormous importance, Jesus drilled the truth of his death and resurrection into his disciples. It's absolutely essential that every man, every woman, grasp the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was also contrary to their hopes and their expectations. The Messiah was thought to be a Messiah of power, And sovereign rule. Not a Messiah who had to suffer and die in order to save man. Again, you know, uh, that's that's a lot of times for us. Our hopes and expectations for Jesus and the Lord's work in our lives doesn't always match God's. And so He has to do some work in our hearts. Hang a sign. Look at your neighbor right now and say, under construction. (laughs) Under construction, that's right. He's still working. You said you need a hard hat. Hard hat. Hard hat zone. I love it. Whoa, that's perfect. I'm going to remember that. I might use that sometime. Man's eternal destiny depends on grasping this truth. The fate of the Christian message depends on believing this truth. As we recall, somebody standing there saying, "I've lost my faith in this society." No, the fate of your message, the fate of the things that you did believe in, brother or sister, if you're struggling with your faith, it depends on believing all of this. The fate of the world, moral truth and justice depends upon men and women grasping and believing this truth. And you know what, if you don't believe me, that's not fine. But someday you will find out, because every knee will bow. And every tongue will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. Now, if you somehow knew that your death would change forever the course of human and divine history, you would probably talk about it. You probably couldn't shut up about it. So why, friends, are we so fearful and hesitant to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection? It's, it's, the time has passed in our society to be seeker-friendly people and not bring the truth. It's, it's past. People are—that's not—that doesn't mean anything anymore. To say, "Hey, come visit," you know, my church. we so everybody's so loving and kind. I hope we are. We need to be, and we should be, and we better be. By golly, <laughs> but that's not our message. That's not our message. Well, now we shift gears a little bit. We're going to see what it means to be caught up in ambition and how to make it right. How to make it right. Ambition isn't necessarily a bad thing. Or it can be a monster. Verse 33, then he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, he called the twelve and said to them, He says, Look, if anybody desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my arms or in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him. Who sent me? So they'd made their way down to the city of Capernaum and they came to a house. And Jesus is like, I, I need to talk to you guys. Okay, now that, I heard you guys talking about something and I want to know what it was you were arguing about. You ever try to teach your kids or your grandkids some very you know, profound and important uh, truth? And instead, they're just simply bickering among themselves, you know, fighting in the back seat. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You're, you're, you're busy lecturing somebody, and, and they're busy messing with something in the back of the room or something like that. That could, that could happen right here and now. <laughs> oh. But it, it, it can be very, um, you know, troubling, I suppose. And the Lord was like, you know, He's like, what are, you, what are you guys arguing about? He already knew. Because he was, he was telling them about the cross. He was telling them the fact that he was going to die and ra- be rose again. And they were busy fighting about who's going to be you know, the best, who's going to be the smartest, who's going to be first in line. And they'll do that again. But how often do you and I, do we hear of the cross and then so easily forget it? Many many have turned and they've never responded. You know They've heard it and they've never responded. We know that. And many have heard and actually responded, but haven't turned the corner. They're they're still pursuing ambition and worldly desires more than Jesus. Ambition isn't wrong. There's things we want to do in life. But when we do that and we chase after that, it starts to consume us. And we find that we're following that. We desire that more than Jesus. We sang that song this morning. There is no one else for me. None but Jesus. That should be our heart and our mind. Now, 2 Peter 1.9, he talks about this desire. And he says, Peter says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. To that person on Facebook who says, I've lost my faith, maybe this verse is a help to you. Maybe you've forgotten that the Lord has cleansed your sins, your old sins, and He's made you new. And so they were busted. He called them out. They were busted in verse 34, but they kept silent. That's a good thing. They weren't going to offer up an excuse. They held their peace. And it wasn't so much that they refused to speak. It was they were amazed once again that He seemed to overhear them. In Luke 9, 47, it says, and Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart then took a little child. And he's going to give an illustration for us here in a minute. But they were ashamed because they knew that the Lord was upset and they were embarrassed. I was speaking to somebody this weekend about uh, a dear sister who's going through a tough time right now. We prayed for her this morning. And she feels that uh, she simply cannot pray she just says you know she's telling this counselor I, I i can't pray and i was on the phone and i asked him i said you know i don't often get a chance to talk to those of you who work in the hospitals for people under care uh, that have psychiatric problems i said but have you ever run into that before where a patient would tell you they they can't pray this was a chaplain he was a, he was a christian and he said he he said something very very good i thought it was good he goes He goes, usually when somebody tells me they can't pray I try to think about it as it applies to myself and I try to reason with them I say, is it because you can't um, mouth the words you can't pronounce the words you're having difficulty doing that he said, but there's usually two times when I can't pray and it's one, when I'm mad at God or two, when God's mad at me and I thought that was very profoundly simple but you know oftentimes there's a there's a block and so this dear sister she's having a hard time right now very difficult time and um you know i think if she was being honest she's probably mad at god because of her cir- circumstance she can't get out of this circumstance and so you know that's something we need to remember that you know jesus has is, is got a lot to say to us through his word and he wants to respond to our prayers but you know if we're angry with god or god's angry with us and we're not confessing our sins it's going to be hard to break through and that's a difficult place but he doesn't desire that for us now it says for these back to our our story it says for these for on the road they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest that was their argument you know what are you worried about well i'm just wondering who's going to be the greatest of all the 12 apostles is it going to be me or is it going to be you and, you know, Peter would say, it's not going to be you, John. It's probably going to be, you know, somebody else. But, I mean, you know, so the silly things that people get sidetracked with. Now, our uncontrolled ambition can be very shameful. And you see that in their response to Jesus. And again, it comes back to having a different set of hopes and expectations. You know, what, did you, what is it that you and I expect from our relationship with the Lord? What is it we expect to have happen in our lives? We know that the world has been turned upside down. Just as it was then, it always will be. And, you know, they were, because of their expectations, they were busy arguing about future positions. They, they actually misinterpreted Jesus. Uh, they, they thought when he said, oh, he must die and rise again, um, they kind of started to spiritualize his words. Isn't that something we tend to do? We tend to spiritualize things without getting to the real heart of the message. Instead of taking his words at face value, you know, they they apparently connected the thought of rising from the dead with setting up his kingdom and beginning to assign leaders, you know, beginning to choose who was going to be ahead of this location, who's going to be over here. But the time wasn't come for that. So Jesus begins now to teach them about the virtue of ambition. So ambition isn't bad. If they would only learn to put their ambition in the right direction. So he sat them down in verse 35. And he says, in those days, uh, people wanted to preach or rebuke. Okay, so in those days, if, uh, if I wanted to preach or rebuke, I'd be standing here. But if I wanted to teach, I'd sit down. And so notice what Jesus is doing. He's not really trying to preach at them or rebuke them at this time. He sat down with them, and now he wants to teach them. And he said this, he says, If anyone desires to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. Now this word servant is where we get our word deacon from, diakonos. The servant of a king, those who advance others' interests at the, even at the sacrifice of their own. You're not thinking about your own needs. You're you're looking for ways to serve others. Now, you and I have all been gifted in one way or another to do that. You know, you can't tell me that uh, if I asked you face to face or if I stood in the mirror and talked to myself, I don't do that very often. I cannot say, oh God, you haven't given me a way to make people's lives easier. Uh, you haven't given, away, given me some thoughts on how I can bless others. You, you haven't been able to do that, Lord. I'm not one you can use to do that. Now, that's just simply not true, folks. David Guzik writes about You know, this, this idea of power, again, is upside down. The idea of power is, is weird. Uh, Guzik writes this. He says, in the worldly idea of power, a great man is distinguished by how many people serve God him in ancient China it was fashionable for wealthy men to grow their fingernails so long that their hands were unusable for basic tasks this demonstrated that they did not need to do anything for themselves a servant was always there to wait on them the world may think of this as greatness but God does not Jesus declared that true greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but by how many you serve. And so then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. This is a very famous illustration. It's not a parable. It's an actual illustration that Jesus gives. And when he had taken the child in his arms, he embraced him. He said, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. To receive means, you know, a practical outworking of receiving is for us not to refuse contact. I know it's COVID, so we can't have contact. Not to receive, refuse contact or fellowship or friendship. You know, again, I'm going to preach not to the choir, but to, the, to the, the, uh, those who maybe are, are deciding not to come back. Or some of you who are struggling with church. Refusing contact and refusing fellowship. And refusing friendship goes against our faith. And so Jesus says, the qualities necessary to receive a child into your arms, if you're willing to take a child into your arms, are the same qualities that should characterize our lives. Having the humility and courage, the desire to forgive and to treat Everyone, just as you would a little child. I mean, who's mean to a child? Let me know. I want to know. <laughs> I want to be mean to you. <laughs> who's mean to a child? When you desire, you you know, a little child, it's not what you can get out of the relationship. He says, if you do that in my name, you receive Jesus. Now, in that day, children were regarded more as property than as individuals. It was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. Some of you may have grown up in that generation. Jesus said that the way we receive people regarded like children shows how we would receive Him. How we would receive our Lord is how we would treat little children. And you know what? This proves our discipleship. How we receive others. Jesus challenges our tendency to be standoffish. I am very standoffish. Or overly suspicious. Aren't we all? I mean, we're jaded as a culture. And our kindness towards others, what happens? It suffers. It suffers. So the Lord is challenging all of us. Open your arms. Open your heart. In verses 38 through 41, we see the problem with cliques and what cliques do. We, you know, they, they, they cause division, uh, to say the least. It's such a human tendency. After hearing Jesus really get to the heart of the matter with his disciples, you, you see John. It says, Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, Casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him. Because he does not follow us. But Jesus said. Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name. Can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name. Because you belong to Christ. Assuredly I say to you. He will by no means lose his reward. Now John, we don't, we don't hear from John much. John's quiet. He, he was the writer of the fourth gospel. He was the son of Zebedee and Salome. He was brother of James the elder. Jesus also referred to John as one of the thun, sons of thunder. Apparently he was actually very outspoken and zealous when he was young before the Lord got to working on him. And when he said, oh, teacher, we saw someone who does not allow us to cast out demons in your name. Now, Jesus has just finished this illustration about the little child. So, you know, uh, I believe John probably had a very guilty conscience at that point. It's funny how that comes out, isn't it? You know, when you get before the Lord and you think, ah, I got something going on, but he, you don't need to know. That doesn't work very well. It says we saw someone who, we don't know who, (laughs) We we have a few ideas, but it says who does not follow us, notice us, not a part of us, he's not a part of our group, he's not hanging out with us, he's not coming to our church, yet he's casting out demons in your name, he's casting out demons in his name. He's, able to, he's, able to, he's doing miracles in Jesus' name. It's been pointed out that Jewish exorcists, because remember we, talk, we talked about this a little bit last week, they would ordinarily try to cast out a demon in the name of an Old Testament saint or a patriarch. But this man, notice he used the name of Christ. And of course John said, "Ah, oh, we have forbade him because he does not follow us. He doesn't go to our church. He's not allowed to do that kind of work. He's not with us, right? <laughs> to forbade him. You know what? They, they hindered him. They, they actually prevent him. That means to prevent. This is where loyalty can cause intolerance. We need to be careful. You see, the Bible is so balanced. The Word of God is so full and rich of wisdom. And we, we tend to swing one way or the other way. It says we forbade him. We actually hindered him from doing the work of God because he doesn't follow us. He's not part of our band of disciples. Now who, who was this man? Perhaps he was a disciple of John. You know, he'd heard a lot of Jesus' teachings. He, he came to know Jesus. He trusted Jesus to be who he says he was. He trusted Jesus to be one who could heal. Maybe he was one of the 70 that Jesus had already sent out. You know, all kinds of speculation. But the bottom line is we don't know who he is. But notice it says, but Jesus said this. He said, do not forbid him. Now, this was a command. And John was most likely expecting Jesus to pat him on the back. That's good. Yeah, get those heretics, John. Take care of them for me. You can be my sheriff. But no, he says... He says, look, nobody who does a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. Here Jesus Christ, God, creator of the universe, who knows all, he he just goes right there to John's face. He legitimizes this man's faith. And then he says this, for he who is not against us is on our side. Matthew 12, 30 says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters me. So if this guy was one of the enemy, if he was you know, off base or wrong, Christ would have called him out. But he's on our side. He's, he's on our part. It's to our advantage, to, to the work of the kingdom. What he's doing is a good thing. He wasn't using Jesus' name in vain. He was performing miracles for the good of others. He was not giving a false teaching about Jesus or his word because the Lord never would have said he's on our side. But John was taking it upon himself. Hear me, folks. He was taking upon himself to determine who's in and who's out. Be very careful. Because that's not our swim lane. Yes, we are to see. We should see fruit in the life of a believer. But we should not be ones to determine or think that we can determine who's in or who's out. Especially those who are doing the work of the Lord. Paul writes in Philippians 1 verses 15 through 18. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ for selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What do we do with this, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Food for thought. One writer put it this way, In false intolerance and legalistic conduct, there is often a good deal of presumption and jealousy. It comes with the territory. We have no right to expect all to serve the Lord in the same way, since gifts and ability are diversified. If others cannot bring the services and sacrifice for Christ, which we think are proper, we have no right to question the sincerity of their Christianity. But notice, he says in verse 41, you know, talking about, hey, John, you know, don't stop him. But look, let's talk about humility for a minute. In verse 41, he says, "For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you." Now, in in that culture, you know, in the in the eastern uh, um, Desert, if you will, the Middle East. That would have been a very welcome act of kindness because of the dry climate. And he says, if they give you this cup of water because you're a Christian, a fellow believer, brother or sister in the Lord, this is especially important to God. And this comes back to what I've been harping on earlier about withholding yourself from the body of Christ. How are you going to even bless others and do things you know, because you belong to Christ, I want to come in fellowship with you. How are you going to do that? And so he says, by doing that, especially well, how we treat one another, is so important. He says he will by no means lose his reward. So think of some reasons why you and I oppose others. It's a good time to kind of take inventory. Maybe write it down. Maybe, you know, look, there's a lot of false teaching out there. I won't deny that. There's a lot of junk out there. But man, sometimes we, we oppose the other's beliefs so vehemently. Uh, loyalty to our organization or our church. Conviction of our own beliefs to the point that if a person doesn't agree, we actually try to hinder them. We cut them off. The unhealthy need for unity. You know, we've got to be careful about that. But more basic, it's really about jealousy, pride, and arrogance, isn't it? And Jesus speaks very loud and clear about that. In fact, when you get into a clique, we get into the very next very serious part of Jesus' rebuke here, if you will, this understanding, this teaching. Well, he's still sitting, so he's still teaching them. We see that cliques actually cause stumbling. And if you're in a position of leadership, And and everyone is pretty much in a position of leadership. Whether you're an older brother or sister, whether you're a parent, and you're a Christian, you are in a position to influence others for or against Jesus Christ. And so he says these words, verses 42 through 48. He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall be never or shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off it is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet than to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And finally, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched let me say up front that that's what's called a hyperbole that's that's jesus is now going to start pointing to the, the very serious need of how we deal with our own sin because if, if it was actual if it was a literal thing then you know we'd all of us would be walking around with limbs missing and eyes gone we'd, we'd be gone but he says but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble." When he says, uh, whoever causes, this means somebody is being scandalized. They're being offended. They're being enticed to actually sin. And he says, for little ones, he's talking about young children. But he's also referring to humble believers, especially the weak and the outcast, those who are susceptible to the influence of others who are also Christians. And says, who believe in me, Okay, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to stumble. That word stumble, it refers to spiritual harm or even destruction. Because of insincere leadership or false teaching, just like a small act of kindness is worthy of reward, the opposite sense is when I cause, or you and I, cause someone to be tripped up in sin... The Lord has a stern warning for us. He says it would be better for him a millstone around his neck. You know, now there were two kinds of millstones in that day. There were the small ones. He's talking about the larger one. Okay, the one that will pull you out, pull you under, and to be thrown into the sea. That's a terrifying description, especially in a, in a time when superstition was pretty high. You know, uh, ancient Greeks they would believe, if, look, we can't recover the body of somebody who's been thrown overboard, and they just kind of. They never get to anywhere. They don't get to be in heaven or hell. They're just kind of lost forever. And so this is a very terrifying illustration. One writer put it this way. Our actions or our words carry significant weight. And ask the question, how many of us have caused someone weaker in faith to doubt or to trust in works rather than Christ? Some organized religions today insist on law as a means of attaining heaven. And yet Jesus called this a very heavy yoke. Jesus turned the tables and insisted that it would be better for these people to be drowned in the sea by a large stone used to grind grain than to cause even one person to doubt or sin. You see we we need to take this very seriously. It says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. John MacArthur wrote this. The Old Testament account of Samuel hacking Agag to pieces in 1 Samuel 15 is a good analogy for the need for Christians to take drastic steps to defeat sin that remains in their lives. This is explicitly commanded in the New Testament. For if you are living according to the flesh, Paul wrote, you must die But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus says, it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands. As he talks about life, he's talking about into life. That word zoe is maybe a familiar um, Greek word, zoe, life. It's the blessing of real life after resurrection. It says, rather than entering into uh, life maimed. Now, history does teach us that some of the early church fathers missed the fact that this was hyperbole, that it was exaggeration being used to make a point by Jesus. And they actually maimed themselves in order to attain heaven. They actually did self-harm and they afflicted themselves. But Jesus says it's better, you know, again, stay with the teaching. It says it's better that you deal with your sin and come to know the Lord as your Lord and Savior for salvation than to go to hell. As simply as could be put, it's better to be saved and have eternal life in Christ than to go to hell. And now he describes hell. He uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, this would have been a very familiar place, this word for hell, Gehenna, would have been a very familiar thing to these apostles. This was originally the valley of Hinnom, which is south of the city of Jerusalem, where filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and they were burned. And it's a symbol of the wicked and their future destruction, what it's going to be like as a symbol. And Jesus goes even further. He says, to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. That word never quenched is asbestos. That's where we get the word asbestos. Not extinguished. It's a perpetual thing. And then he has a very strange verse here in verse 44. It says, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 66. Verse 24, when he talks about their worm, that, that word worm is, is scolex. It's the kind of worm that preys on dead bodies. You know, we've, we've seen the illustrations. You see, uh, every Halloween you see that kind of stuff, right? The ghoulish animations. It says their worm, the kind of worm that preys on dead bodies, does not die. Everlasting punishment is what he's talking about. As opposed to the idea, which is popular among some, known as annihilation. You know, some would teach that, yes, when you die, if you die apart from God and you're a sinner, you go and God just turns on the furnace, burns everybody to annihilation and turns the furnace off. But Jesus says it's an unquenchable fire. It's not intended for a momentary act of destruction. So you need to tell that to your friends who believe In annihilation, it's not intended to go out. By worm, one writer put the. You know, let's just take this for what it what it could be. What did Christ mean when he said, "By their worm never turns"? It could be this: that their worm is a hell that afflicts man. Therefore, it can be called their worm, something that's eating you up inside. This is, of course, a picture of something within hell that would prey upon man, wound him, and inflict a biting, gnawing, and consuming pain. And note, it dies not. It never goes away. Or, there's a worm within man in hell, and the worm within is a worm created by his own sinful hands. A worm within that bites and gnaws and consumes him. Perhaps the worm is memory and the conscience that never leaves the man alone. It disturbs and reminds him of what he has missed and lost. And Jesus is going to repeat this for the hand and the foot and the eye. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Radical purity is what Jesus is getting at. Radical purity. Radical purity. In verse 47, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Again, it's better that you enter the kingdom of God now. He says, he uses the word kingdom of God. It was life. This is eternal life with God in heaven. It would be better for you to enter heaven without that, having dealt with your sin, than to be cast into hell fire. Back to the Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. This, this was a technical dis designation for the place of final punishment. It was due to two causes, really. The, for the Jews, they would have thought of this. In the first place, the valley was the seat of idolatrous worship by Molech. You've heard about that in the Old Testament. We read about Molech, the god Molech, that children were given to, children were sacrificed to. Uh, On account of these practices, the place was defiled by King Hosea, or Josiah, excuse me, and became in consequence associated in prophecy with the judgment to be visited upon people. In fact, the city's uh, offal was collected that they may have it uh, help to render the name synonymous with extreme defilement. This is where all the garbage went from the city. And so all this designates a final place of judgment. Both body and soul will be cast into it. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is what I'm saying. I mean cut to the chase. And this would have been a vivid image in their minds because in order to keep the smell down, they had to keep that fire burning. They had to keep that trash heap constantly on fire day and night. Now, one writer, I think we we kind of, let me try to explain a little bit better. One writer put it this way. I like how he wrote it. He said, the mention of the body parts, the hand, the foot, and the eye, that emphasizes that the battle against sin includes all aspects of believers' lives, what they do, where they go, and what they see. What they do, where they go, and what they see. The references to hell as the disastrous alternative indicate that these statements are calls to the initial repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when you realize that I am I am that I am a sinner, that accompanies salvation, and they prompt people to remove anything in their lives that would be a barrier into entering into eternal life in the kingdom of God. When you come before the Lord in your salvation, you receive Jesus Christ, you confess your sins, you don't want anything to get in the way. And so you're willing to say, Lord, I've, you know, you, you, I'm not going to say, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a, I've stolen. I've done so many terrible things in my life. Lord, forgive me of my sins, whatever they are. So that's your salvation. You've, you've done that. You've, you've been, your sins are paid for. Okay, Christian, your sins are paid for. But now we're talking also about the present struggle. Because it says causes, he uses a present tense of the verb. It indicates that the struggle against temptation and sin is continual. That's basic understanding for us as Christians. We are continually having to deal with sin. So the initial commitment then becomes our lifelong pattern. The initial commitment is said, I gave my life to the Lord. I've confessed my sins. Well, guess what? As you walk through life, you guys know it. We deal with temptation. We deal with sin. Jesus called for a radical and severe action against anything that hinders the pursuit of holiness. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that you and I not toy with sin and play with it and fantasize about it? Because it can, it can, it can, Rule your life. It can take over. And so, you know, you just got to cut it off. I mean, I, I've, I've said it more than once. I, I hate my flesh. I hate the things that go on in my mind. But I know that the, my, my, my battle can be won. I can overcome it, and so can you, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it takes a radical and severe action. It's called, get with God, confess your sins, pray constantly. Amen? Now, Jesus had driven this point home. He says, we need to take our lives seriously. Now he says here in the final two verses, he says, as living sacrifices, interesting thing, he's now going to talk about your salt. He says, check your salt. In other words, have peace with another. And he's going to talk about, your, okay, you're a living sacrifice. Well, you know, he's going to go into that. He says here, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Oh, is that the end of my message? No. We got we to talk about that. We got to explain that. Oh, have peace with everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you guys. No. He says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. To be seasoned means to be salted. He says every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Again, they would understand what Jesus was talking about because they were used to their understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices which were still going on during that day. So what he's talking about here, we can we kind of look at it for us. How does it apply to us? Because if you're talking about Leviticus 2.13, which it specifically says, it says every offering of your grain offering shall you shall season with salt. In other words, that sacrifice now needs to be seasoned with salt and you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And so you and I are living sacrifices. And so what he's saying here is uh, one, one thing is the main interpretation is that the fire refers to tribulation and suffering. You know, that's what we go through. We, 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 can all, we all have our story. We all have our difficulty. We all have our struggle that we can put on Facebook. And these things accompanied the living sacrifice of the disciple. Since Old Testament sacrifice always included salt. So Jesus is saying that just as every sacrifice under the law required salt, so the living sacrifice my followers bring to me must be seasoned with suffering and tribulation. So salt can represent suffering and tribulation in your life. Jesus said you will have tribulations. The other main interpretation is that the fire refers to the Holy Spirit. As his presence in our lives seasons us, it purifies, it preserves, and adds flavor to our lives. Just make, thus making our living sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, in verse 50, he says, hey, salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how are you going to season it? Why would he say that? Well, because in their time, salt had so many impurities into it that it could actually, over the course of time, lose its saltiness. And you couldn't re-salt it. It had to be thrown out. So he says, have salt in yourselves. Now, Paul gives a good explanation about what that means. Colossians 4, 6. This is how we talk. You know, we talk about salty dog, salty sailor, whatever. That usually is accompanied with salty language that's not repeatable. What Jesus is saying in another way, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 4, 6, he says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, salt means purity and holiness. That, that's what we want to be seasoned with. Our, you, you and I need to evaluate our salt. You know, how, am I seasoned? Am I, is my life seasoned with grace, with purity, with usefulness? Is it, is it you know, if, I, if I'm not seasoned with those things, I can't be used. You want to be pure. You want to be holy and you want to be righteous by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, go live in peace with one another. This is essential. Amen? Amen. We're going to get ready, and we're going to switch gears again and, uh, one more time today. And we're going to take communion together. So what I'd like to do, something a little bit different when we take communion, is um, we'll come up and we can kind of put the lights down, if you will, Wayne, and... Uh, we'll come up and, and everybody can come take your communion and then go return and have a seat at this time instead of standing. We'll stand at the end to sing. We're just going to do it a little bit different. So loosen up a little. Uh, Lord, I, I'm going I'm to pray and as I'm praying, you guys just kind of come, come and take your communion and then we'll return to our seats except for me and, and John and uh, we'll have communion together. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word today, Lord God. We thank you for the truth of your word. May it edify us. May it strengthen us, Lord. Father, I pray that it would linger into this week that we would take some of the things that you've taught us today that we could just put them right to use, Lord. That we could be seasoned with grace. We could be seasoned with purity and holiness to be useful for you. Lord, we we just come before you now and we're we're so happy to be able to, to sit together and take communion. We're so grateful that you've set this table for us. The table of sacrifice and the reminder of the new covenant that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, as we get together and do that today. So, Father, we just ask that you go before us now as we partake of communion together. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.